That's my favorite pianist right there. And I thank God for a wonderful, faithful Christian wife. And uh, it's a joy for us to serve the Lord together. You know, you might not think this is true, but it is. There are a lot of pastors whose wives don't come to church. It's unthinkable, but it happens. I travel for many years, and I can't tell you how many times I'd meet the pastor, and I'd look forward to shaking his wife's hand, just greeting her, but never saw her anywhere. It might have been that she wasn't feeling well or home with the kids, but, you know, the reason I'm able to do what I do is because of the Lord and a wonderful wife who supports me and a wonderful church family that cares for us the way you do, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, what a joy it was to just spend about an hour with so many folks back in the back just talking about reaching people. It just encouraged my heart to see so many that have a desire, and God's just lighting a fire, a passion, I hope all of us will be more in tune with trying to talk to people about the Lord. I know that Brother and Mrs. Flynn have always challenged me. You know, if somebody 900 years old can do it, then certainly, certainly, I well, 901, I'm sorry, can do it. But what a blessing. Uh, I also wanted to mention, and I think Brother Kenny might have said it this morning, but uh, there's been some people in my life that have been a tremendous, positive, godly influence. And one of those men that I hold very dear is my pastor, Paul Chapel. And uh, I found out about a week ago that he's actually going to be over in Naples on Monday night, November the 1st. And uh, I just said if, if we had some folks that wanted to go, whether it's just me or we want to take a couple vans or whatever, but there's a sign-up sheet on the table, not the one in the center of the lobby on the table. <clears throat> we just need to make sure that we have enough room and so on. If you're interested in going, we would have to leave at 5 on that Monday night. And uh, so if you'd like to go, I think it's about an hour and a half from here to Naples. Um, but a tremendous preacher of the Word of God. And I'd love to introduce you to my pastor. And I know that you would enjoy hearing from him, and uh, you, you'll meet him, and you'll say, uh, you know, well, we can tell now why pastor loves him so much. And I believe every pastor needs a pastor, and we all need that encouragement. Well, take your Bibles tonight, and we're in towards the end of the Old Testament in these minor prophets, and... Um, if the Lord gives me enough gas, we'll make it through tonight. And uh, we're here we are in the books of Obadiah, Micah, and Jonah. And so we're looking forward to uh, covering these. And uh, this has been a tremendous study. Again, I want to apologize for uh, the rapidity of going through these uh, the way that we are. There's so much that I could spend easily one Sunday night with each one of them. But um, I, the Lord put on my heart to uh, jump into some new things in the beginning of next year. And so we're trying to conclude this by the end of this year. And so hopefully you're getting enough that would, that would give you an appetite to 
study each one of these in a little bit more detail, <clears throat> and, and I was encouraged this morning when I was talking to some folks that are going to be baptized in a couple weeks to join our church, and, and uh, he, said, he said, now, Pastor, we watch the services on Sunday night, and uh, I said, that's awesome, and so they're probably watching right now, but I'm so glad you're here. What a great crowd tonight, and uh, we just want to continue to be faithful so let's jump in tonight, Obadiah, and of course we're 66 books, we're in towards the end of the New Testament. The title of the book of Obadiah is the book of doom for anti-Semitism. Now anti-Semitism is a fancy word, if you've never heard of it, it's basically dealing with hostility against Jewish people. That's what anti-Semitism is. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't think this is true, but it's still prevalent even in the world today. Uh, many are hostile against God's people, the Jewish people. Uh, the name Obadiah means a servant, a servant. And he probably knew Habakkuk and Ezekiel and was a contemporary with Jeremiah and Daniel, lived in the same time, same uh, period of prophecy. He was the 13th of the prophets. And uh, I think we've been using the same one. I think you've got it on the back page or so, but again, you can see there where uh, Obadiah fits in uh, with the prophets course towards the end as the 13th prophet. The uh, contents of the book as we look at this small book, now here it is. Edom, one of Israel's enemies, is the main theme of Obadiah's prophecy. These folks, these people are known as the Edomites, and the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? So they were the descendants of Esau, and here it is. They never forgot Jacob and all of his descendants for cheating their ancestor out of his birthright. Remember the whole story? He came in from the field, thought he was going to die, had to have some food, and Jacob, the supplanter, said, sell me thy birthright. And he traded it for a bowl of soup. That's what he did. Now, how little value. Now listen, Jacob didn't make him do that. He did that of his own accord. Just like, just like we see Adam when uh, he took some of the fruit. I don't see where Eve body slammed him and shoved it in his mouth. And so understand here that uh, th these people, the Edomites, they never forgave Jacob. That's the hostility that's built up in their hearts towards these people, the people of God. Their grudge led, and you have it in your notes, to a threefold sin. Number one, here's the first part of it. When the Israelites, and you may remember this story, if not, you can go back and read it, but they were approaching the land known as Canaan. They sought permission from the king of Edom to pass through his territory. Now, again, they did it right. They were asking permission, can we come through your land? And notice they gave him assurance that the privilege would not be abused. We won't destroy anything, but notice the king refused their request and was prepared to fight if the Israelites had persisted in moving forward. So here's what we find is Israel, because the king refused, they had to turn back to what is known as Mount Hor, and the Bible says they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. 
So all of that was as a result of that that had spilled over years before that. And they had never forgiven for what had, what had been taken from them as they viewed it. That was the first part of their sin. Notice the second one. It was during the reign of Ahaz, when Judah was attacked by Pekah and Razan, that the Edomites invaded Judah, and they carried off captives. There, there had been other conflicts between Israel and Edom, but this was one where they invaded and they carried off captives. Notice the third one, and this one's pretty alarming. You see the hostility here. The Edomites rejoiced when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. They literally rejoiced. They were glad for what had befallen them as a people. So that's their grudge in a threefold sin. <clears throat> Obadiah predicts judgment upon Edom for her grudge against and the treatment of God's people through Jacob's lineage. Obadiah's prophecy was a detailed pronouncement of the general prophecy of God to Abraham that, here it is, any nation which curses his people would be cursed. Now you see the verse there, if I included it, Genesis 3, 12, uh, 12, 3, I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Notice, all families of the earth. That'll tell you right there why I believe it's important that America be a friend to Israel. And we see the promise of God. Now notice Edom's behavior. We're talking about not one person, a people. Their behavior and doom is a classic warning against anti-Semitism, against hostility against Jewish people. There's great value to this book. Verse 10, we see this. For the, the Bible says, Thy violence against thy brother Jacob's shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off. What's the rest of it say? Wow, that's a long time. Because of this hostility. Now, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. And you have uh, there, I think you have the chart. Do we have a chart of this? I think you have it on the back page here. Notice here, it's just the one chapter. And I love it, again, at the top, I will, thou shouldest not have, and there shall be. Judah is persecuted, and then notice Judah is restored. And, uh, of course, we see Edom, the nations, and Israel, the focus of God. Just in this short amount of time, the kingdom shall be the Lord's wonderful outline that we see here. And maybe you can use that as you do further studies in the book of Obadiah. Now, the character of this falls right in line in one of the minor prophets. It's a prophetical book. And the subject of the book of Obadiah is God's special care over the Jews, God's special care, and the certainty of punishment to those who persecute them. So God's going to take care of his people, and he will punish those that persecute them. The purpose of the book, and this is really for us, okay, is notice to assure us of final victory, final, over our enemies in the heavenlies and the eternal possession of our blessings in Christ. So we see something for ourselves 
as we study this book. Now, you saw the outline. It's really a simple, basic outline divided into two sections, the first 16 verses and then really the last uh, six or so verses. And it begins with the doom of Edom, the charge against them, the crime, and, of course, the catastrophe to Edom, verses 15 and 16, and then the deliverance of Israel. So notice the doom of Edom, but the deliverance of, of Israel, the triumph of Israel, the possession of Israel, and the establishment of Israel, God being faithful to his word, and we see this in this simple outline. Now, the period of, of the prophecy was really just about a year in length, a very small prophecy, but yet so very important in the scheme of God's people. Notice the writer is believed to have been Obadiah. Again, there's some that would hold that it was not. Uh, you can take that whichever way you want, but many believe that it is Obadiah that wrote uh, this small book. Now, who did he write it to? His target audience was largely to the Edomites with a promise to future hope for Israel. So it was largely to the Edomite people. When was it written? Well, again, many believe that this is not dated as far as that, but if you look at some of the internal evidence you see in verses 11 and 12, these verses seem to fix the date near the time of the final overthrow of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, which was about 597 B.C. So if you wanted to date it, it probably would be fair to say somewhere in that area. Now, where was it written from? Well, near the holy city in the southern kingdom of Judah, somewhere near the holy city. The key chapter, well, there's only one chapter. <laughs> so God's judgment in the foreign nation of Edom, and we've addressed that a couple times, but God judging them for what they did. The key verse is verse 15. And the Bible says, for the day of the Lord is near, we've talked about this already, upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee, thy reward shall return upon thine own head. There's a verse in the New Testament that talks about what we sow, we're going to reap, you know. Uh, God will not be mocked, and so understand that uh, oftentimes, uh, you cast your bread upon the water, and it'll come back around. And we see this even in this small book. The key word is the word retribution. Retribution. And the key phrase in verse number 17 is the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. You know, you think about this. I, I don't know if it's fair to say this or not, but many people have said over the years that God has so many blessings for us as his people, but I wonder how many of those blessings we'll never receive because we're not obedient to the Lord. And so again, we see here that Israel, the house of Jacob, shall possess their possessions. The key thought is Edom's punishment and Israel's glory. So it's kind of a two-sided coin, again, the punishment coming upon them. Spiritual thought, going right back to what we said, verse 17, Possess your possessions. You know, whatever God has for you, possess it, own it. Uh, you know, a lot of times as Christians, we're not doing that which we should be doing. The book is unique in a couple ways. Uh, in verse number 10, we see the matter of Edom, as we read it earlier, cut off. Now, four years after their shouting with joy that 
Jerusalem had fallen, four years after that, they were conquered by the Babylonians in 582 B.C. From this point, 582, till their extinction, they as a people never regained their full power. They never got it back. They were subdued by the Maccabees in 126 B.C. Under Roman rule, they were under the control of the Herods. Of course, there were many of the Herods, a title there, the rulers of the day, and they were actually under the rule of even the Edomite family. Now, the Edomites were finally cut off forever, as the Bible says, with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They were cut off, which is what God said. The second thing that is kind of unique, and and I, I found this interesting, is Edom's capital city was known as Selah. Selah, you see that in 2 Kings 14.7. Now, this was something that, again, we are, even today as a people, very prideful. Well, notice that as a people, Edom's pride, verse number 3, here it is, that her habitation in the mountains of Seir was invincible. Nobody could touch them. That's what they thought. And they, they thought that no one, see, she lived by attacking caravans, uh, groups of people passing by or upon cities they attacked nearby. And then here's what they would do. They would hide in the clefts of the rock. Now, that area that they hid in was known as Selah. Today, that is known as Petra. How many of you have heard of Petra? And if you've ever seen a picture of it, huge clefts of rock. And so, again, this is, this is the area that we see Edom years ago. Now, notice Christ is magnified two ways in just one chapter, this small book of prophecy. In verse 21, he's identified as the Lord of the kingdom, the Lord of the kingdom. And, again, we love this even in the Old Testament as in the New, verse 21, he's identified as Savior. He is Savior, and of course, bringing with him salvation. And so uh, what a wonderful thought there in the book of Obadiah. Now, a couple things is before we move on to the next book, notice here what a different prophecy. I just wanted you to think about this. If you're familiar with the book, if not, maybe a lot of these thoughts uh, are thinking, wow, I never realized there was so much in one chapter, one book known as Obadiah. But what a different prophecy Obadiah might have had if Edom had only forgiven the Jews. Can you imagine the difference in the outcome? Edom's direct fight against Israel was an indirect fight against God. See, ultimately, all sin is against God. So even though it appeared that Edom was fighting against Israel, Edom was really fighting against God. And so it says here that in her arrogance and pride... She failed to reckon with God, make things right with God. Listen, you're here tonight. Don't start tomorrow if there's something that's not right between you and God. Keep a short account with the Lord. Reckon things that need to be reckoned with God. It says that because that they finally their unassailable fort was brought low by God himself and they were cut off forever. Here they were, they thought they were invincible, all right, but they were. Notice Christians and churches today, and I think this is true, experience defeat because they are filled with pride. They have need of nothing, so they think. They hold grudges, 
just like Edom did, ill feelings towards their fellow man. They have no concern for the Jews, and they're bringing destruction to themselves. The Bible says pride always goes before a what? Before a fall. So look, before you point a finger at Edom, search your heart. By nature, we are very prideful people. Look at this thought. When people remove themselves from or place themselves in opposition to God's people, they can expect judgment rather than restoration at the end of life. You can expect it. So again, be right with God. Obadiah offers us, and I use the word here, blunt reminder to place ourselves under God's authority to subject our appetites to His purposes, and to find our hope in being His people when the restoration of all things comes. We need to make sure that we are right with God when that time comes. And the book of Obadiah, listen, I hope you're like me. I was like, wow. You know, I was like, I need to get back to that book and study it a little bit more. So many wonderful lessons there for all of us. Now, a book that most of us are familiar with, Jonah, right? You say Jonah, you immediately start to think certain things. Uh, we've recently done a vacation Bible school, and it revolved around the life of Jonah. This is the book I titled, The Book of God's Mercy. God's Mercy. Jonah, his name means a dove. His actual name, Hebrew name, is Yonah. That's how you pronounce his name. And here he was. He was the runaway prophet who returned. <laughs> he was the runaway prophet. He was the missionary prophet, the messenger from the sea monster. <laughs> That's what he was. Now, it's interesting when you look at this, and, and I just threw this in. I'm just trying to be transparent with you what you're going to encounter if you're going to live for God. Here it is. When you look at the book of Jonah, critics have sought to make this book an allegorical tale, not history. Jonah, to them, is a fictitious character. That's what they believe. Now, I love this story. A, a Sunday school girl was ridiculed by the town skeptic regarding her faith in Christ and her belief in the Bible. When asked if she believed the fish story of Jonah, the girl said, yes. Asked to explain the miracle, she couldn't. But here's what she said, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah all about it. The skeptic said to her, well, suppose he's not in heaven. And the little girl sweetly said, well, then you ask him. Now, Jews of old, listen to this, important, Jews of old have accepted the book of Jonah as historical fact, the Jews of old. The writer of 2 Kings recognized Jonah as a real person. Look at the verse, 2 Kings 14.25, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. So again, we find the Jews of old have accepted the book of Jonah as a historical fact. Well, listen, if that's not enough for you, 
Christ himself accepted the account of Jonah as historical. I think that's good enough for me right there. Matthew chapter 12, he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall, be, there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus himself accepted the account of Jonah as historical. Jesus also believed as history Jonah's account of Nineveh. Look at the Bible says in Matthew 12, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. It also says, look at the verse, Luke 11, when the people were gathered uh, thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign under the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. So from these verses, listen, you have the choice. You can either accept the words of Christ or you can accept the words of the critics. I think I'll accept Jesus' words myself. Now notice Jonah was the second of the prophets early on with the prophets in the, in the lineage. He was the successor, think about this, of Elijah and Elisha. Wow, that's a tough act to follow. It's likely that he trained in what is known as the school of the prophets. And again, I think you see the chart there. You can see where Jonah is right there, just the second of the prophets. Now, the contents of the book tells the story of a man who was called of God. If you're familiar with these four chapters, he was called of God to preach, but he wanted to run away from the call. A lot, a lot of people have been called of God, and because of this small book, God got a hold of them. They were running, and God got a hold of them, and they did what God asked them to do. It's been a tremendous, impressionable, encouraging book. So many people, for fear, don't want to serve God, don't want to preach. And we see here, look at this, part of that is because Jonah, notice his congregation, who would he be preaching to? The Gentiles of Nineveh. I wish, look, there's children in here, so I won't. But if you have a way that you can research out, you ought to research the people of Nineveh in Jonah's day. I don't know, I know there were, but I don't know of a more wicked, vile people The things that they did to people, torment and so on. You know, a lot of times we think, well, I just can't believe Jonah. Well, I wonder if it would have been you or me. I mean, there was a real reason. Now, again, whatever our reason is, it doesn't outweigh God's call. I think of the missionaries. The story of the lady missionary that went to a a cannibalistic people and how they they were afraid that when they dropped her off from the helicopter, they'd never see her again. And when they came back 30 days later, here was one white woman in a sea of dark skinned people. 
that she had won to Christ and didn't even know the language. You see, God can do miraculous things, but many times we don't think about how big our God is. And so I think sometimes about the people that God gives me to preach to. Nothing compared to the people that Jonah had to preach to. See, the Bible tells us that his congregation were people that he, as a Jew, despised. They despised the people of Nineveh. So his attempt to run away could be due to the 40-day timeline that God put on Nineveh to repent. Jonah probably thought, 40 days? I mean, it could be 400 days, and it's not going to happen. And again, maybe humanly speaking, now, here's a thought for whatever it's worth. If Jonah could avoid God for 50 days, (laughs) then his religious bigotry would triumph. And these Gentiles would fail to receive God's warning to repent and suffer the consequences of God's judgment. And you know what? This would have pleased Jonah. And it's evident from his nationality, his bigotry, Jonah would have been just fine because he felt like these people deserve judgment. Do you know that everyone deserves heaven? There's no one that you and I shouldn't witness to. There's no wrong side of the tracks. A lot of times, what do we do? We look at, we look at the person. We see the piercings, the tattoos, the whatever it is. Listen, you need to see the soul that Jesus died for. So again, we think about the mercy of God here. God's mercy overrode. Oh, actually, I think I I skipped a line here. God created circumstances in such a way through a great fish that Jonah got to Nineveh in plenty of time, and Nineveh did repent. And that's really the the whole story. That's kind of interesting, just a side thought. But remember how God said the 40 days will... Jonah didn't even realize, but the 40 days didn't really begin until he started preaching. (laughs) Just a thought, Jonah. So God's mercy overrode his judgment, and these Gentiles had one of the mightiest revivals that history has ever known, ever been recorded. Think about it. Every last person, Brother Flynn. 250,000. Now, did you make that number up? Just kidding. That's amazing. Is that you read that? That's amazing. That's a lot of people. And every one of them turned to the Lord. That's amazing. You know, you think about that compared to the day of Pentecost. Three thousand, two hundred and fifty thousand, or however many we had. That's that's amazing. But it's all because of God's mercy. Now notice Jonah's resent resentment of this great work of God's grace. Isn't it? You know, you think about that. Shouldn't Jonah have rejoiced that they all got saved? What what a work of God. But his resentment of God's grace, power, and mercy is seen in his desire to die. After, After this mighty outpouring of God, he has a desire to die. And out of this experience, Jonah saw how sinful his resentment was. And how pointless it was to try and keep back God's salvation from the whosoever wills. You know, what a wonderful thing there that we see this salvation by a couple hundred thousand people. Look at the chart. I think we have the chart of Jonah. And again, just four chapters. But notice we see the first commission and the second commission. Because if you remember early on in the book, 
God called him, and the Bible says Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. And I think there's some wonderful words here because the Bible says God called unto him the second time. Aren't you glad God gives us another opportunity after our disobedience? And we see some wonderful things happen here, the call, the sin, the consequences, the prayer, the deliverance. And then you see, look at it again, the call, the sin forgiven, the consequences, the prayer, and the rebuke that comes at the end of it. So again, God doing his work, commissioning Jonah, God hears as Jonah prays, and the Bible says while Jonah's in that great fish, now in the Old Testament it's called a great fish, in the New Testament the word whale is used, but notice here that that as you see this, Jonah is praying from inside this large fish. And he describes it from the belly of hell. I thought about that this week as I was preparing for this morning's message. Jonah considered that. He was in the heart of the earth, in the middle of this great fish. And God hears, God spares, and then in the end, because of Jonah's own sin, God has to reprove him. To whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And so what a wonderful book. We see so many great things here. Notice the character of this book. Even though it's one of the minor prophets, I would call this a personal history. Dealing with this man, this individual that God was wanting to use. Notice the subject is God's dealing with a disobedient prophet. And Nineveh's repentance. Nineveh's repentance. Now for us, the purpose of the book is to reveal to us, typically God's dealing with his son as a substitute to disobedient ones. And to teach us that God's mercy and faithfulness are extended to each of his servants. God's mercy is extended even to Jonah, even to you and I. Now, here's a little outline. It's a really easy one. You, you could eat, some of you guys, you could even preach this someday. I'll give you my permission. But notice the four chapters here. You have the prodigal prophet. Remember the story of the son that, that requested his, what was his, and he left? We call that story the prodigal son. Well, Jonah took off from the presence of the Lord just like the prodigal did. But then notice in chapter 2, he's the praying prophet. <laughs> Remember how... The, the prodigal son, he was eating among the hogs, and he, he started to think, hey, listen, my father's servants have it better than I do, and so I'm going to go to my father, and this is what I'm going to say to him. Well, that's what Jonah did. Jonah began to pray from the belly of that whale, and then notice chapter 3, we see finally, after he got right, the preaching prophet. Now he's doing what God called him to do, and then look at chapter 4, the pouting prophet. <laughs> Jonah wasn't happy that Nineveh got saved, that God spared them. Now, the scope of the book is a period of about 12 years, and the writer, of course, is Jonah. We've given you a lot of internal evidence there, Old Testament and New. Now, again, I'll go back to this as a statement here, but critics claim that someone other than Jonah wrote this book, and their argument is that Jonah, and we've seen this 
even in the book of Daniel, that Jonah is not mentioned as the author and that it was written in the third person. Now, just because uh, something is written in the third person, many authors have written about themselves in the third person. It's never been necessary for an author to state that he wrote a book about himself. So again, this is yet another way that critics are trying to disprove. Now we understand all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And again, I'm just trying to give you a little backdrop that you may encounter some folks that try to disprove this book or they may say that Jonah was not the writer of the book. Now who did he write to? It was written to Israel. When was it written? Well, Jonah's experience happened sometime between 784 and 772 B.C. Where did he write it from? Well, it was not from the belly of the whale. Notice here that it was written to Israel. He experienced, uh, it says here that he experienced it from 784 to 772, and it was recorded in Israel somewhere near a Galilean village where he grew up and just north of Nazareth, just north of Nazareth. Now, out of the four chapters, the key chapter, I would say, is chapter 2, where Jonah prays to God, the prayer of Jonah. The key verse I found in chapter 3, verse 2, where the Bible says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. What people need to hear, I just told those folks back there, is they need to hear real answers, and real answers are from the Bible, biblical answers. And so that's, that's what we see is that God wanted him to go and preach his word to these people. Now, the key word is preach, and the key phrase is arise and go. Do You know, that's still the part of the Great Commission to us today. The church is not supposed to stay or get comfortable. It's to go into all the world with the gospel. And so, listen, get off of our seat and go do what God's called us to do. Key thoughts here, notice in chapter 2, then Jonah prayed. And also in verse 9 of chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. The spiritual thought here is, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. That was Paul's testimony. And, of course, Jonah found out that if he wasn't going to do what God called him to do, his life was going to be miserable. And I've run into many people later in their life who, with regrets, have said, you know, years ago, God called me to do this, and I didn't do it. And their testimony is, woe unto me. I wish I would have done what God called me to do. Notice a couple things unique about it, and we see Jonah as a type. Well, type of what? Three things. He's a type of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We see Jonah as a type of the believer's witness to ministry, to witness to Gentiles. God's given us, go ye into all the world. The Bible says, ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That was one of the things about the book of Acts. You see, God's initial audience that he wanted to be saved was the nation of Israel, to the Jew first. But the Bible says also to the Greek. And they really struggled in the first century when, because of the unbelief of the Jews, the gospel went forth to the Gentile nations. 
because people thought those are, as the Bible says, uncircumcised people, dogs. They don't deserve the grace of God. And there's a huge transition, if you've never seen it, in the book of Acts, where it is to the Jews, then it is to half-breed Jews, Samaritans, and then the gospel goes to the Gentile nations. And if you're like me tonight, unless you're a Jew, you're a Gentile. And I'm glad that the good news came to all of us. So notice he's also a type of Israel, swallowed up by the nations of the world, but here's the key, never digested. God still has a plan for Israel. And so we see this, we even see it in the New Testament. So Jonah's a type. Notice uh, we also see God's purposes. And uh, here's, here's just uh, four chapters, some great things. First of all, we see the great wind. God used this to bring about cause for concern in trying to flee from God. So God brings about the great wind. Remember how Jonah, he went down into the ship. God brought this wind and now all of a sudden the ship is being tossed and these, these unsaved sailors are throwing everything off the ship. And remember, eventually, it, Jonah was exposed because of his God. And they even thought, well, listen, we're not going to do that. And Jonah finally said, listen, just toss me over. God brought about his purpose, a great wind, to get Jonah to see the need to do what he had called him to do. Notice in, also in chapter 1, Jonah was asleep in the storm to show how one can become hardened to God's call. Not even here. We become callous to the things of God. We've said this a couple times. Notice another purpose. God prepared a fish to swallow up Jonah, serve God's purpose in rescuing his disobedient servant from sure death. God uses some, uh, some things that we would never think or imagine. But God always has a purpose. He's working all things together for good. Notice another one is Jonah survives in that fish's stomach for three days and three nights for punishment for attempting to escape his duty. Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the accommodations? But he survived it. Did he not, did he not have a story to tell? Sometimes it's the things we've gone through that God can use to help us to do what we do for Him in a greater way. I've seen many that have served our country become great soldiers for the Lord because of the things that they've seen, the things that they have done, what they've experienced. Here's another one, Jonah's deliverance from the fish. This is in answer to his repentant prayer. God, God always answers our prayer and then Notice the prepared gourd, the worm, and the vehement east wind in chapter 4. And all of that God used just to humble Jonah. God many times will bring us down, will he not? And we see this in the end, God's purposes. Notice another thing is in chapter 1, the disobedience to God. When we disobey God, and I want you to take note of this from Jonah's life, notice that God's favor is forfeited. Notice that we are deprived of God's promised blessings. We also see through disobedience how that our disobedience provokes God's anger. We see that our disobedience brings judgment, and our disobedience shall be punished. 
Now, how is Christ magnified in the book of Jonah? First of all, he is the obedient son. Unlike Jonah, Jonah disobeyed, but Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. We see Jesus magnified as the risen prophet. He mentioned earlier that just as Jonah was three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be. And then, I love this, Jesus is known as a friend of sinners. God wanted those people in Nineveh to repent. And Jesus was criticized for sitting and eating and sharing with people that were sinners. Well, in my opinion, every person you sit down with is a sinner because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we see him magnified. Now, let me give you a conclusion here. Jonah set forth in himself the type of the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ. He declares the grace and mercy of God to repenting sinners and signifies the calling of the Gentiles after the death and resurrection of Christ. And we mentioned that earlier. And one of the greatest truths that Jonah reveals is the salvation of the Lord. He got it in the depths of the great fish and in the depths of the greatest trial that had ever come to him. Now, think about Jonah. Now, I'm going to switch this to your life. Look at this. In the hour of our greatest trials is the time that truths are made real to us. The, this great truth not only reveals that salvation is of the Lord, but all the provisions of salvation are of the Lord. The power to appropriate salvation is of the Lord. The grace to persevere in salvation is of the Lord. Salvation from start to finish is of Him and is revealed to us in His Son, Jesus. The Bible says He's the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Now, Jonah is very profitable in instructing us about the power and goodness of God, the nature, repentance, and the effects of it, the imperfection and the infirmities of the best of men in this life, and the call and mission of the ministers of the word, and the necessity of their conformity and attendance to it. Now, here's a thought that I wanted to leave you with when it, we, we move on here. The fish is not the hero of the story, neither is the fish the villain. The book is not even about a fish. The chief difficulty is in keeping a correct perspective. The fish is among the props that does not occupy the star's dressing room. Let us distinguish between what is known as the essentials and the non-essentials or the incidentals. The incidentals in the book of Jonah are the fish, the gourd, the east wind, the boat, and Nineveh. The essentials are Jonah, excuse me, Jehovah and Jonah. The essentials are God and man. That's the focus of the book of Jonah. Now again, it might be a man, but God wants to use a man or a woman to reach others. That's what the book of Jonah is all about, the mercy of God. Now, the last book is the book of Micah. And again, sounding familiar with Obadiah, the book of doom and glory. Micah's name is actually an interrogation, and it means 
who is like Jehovah? And again, the answer to that is no one. He lived up to his name, Micah did, by showing how our God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Micah's the commoner among the prophets. He was the champion of the people against those who wronged them politically and religiously. He was known as the prophet of the poor because of his defense of them. He was a true champion of the people. Now, he was the herald prophet, and I said that because he was the one that heralded the place of Christ's birth. We'll talk about that in just a minute, Micah 5.2. Micah witnessed both the wickedness of Ahaz and the revival under Hezekiah, and he lived to see his own prophecy fulfilled against Samaria when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now, to show you where his life was, where it was with other prophets, he was contemporary with Hosea and Isaiah. Micah was in the lineage, the sixth of the prophets. And again, I think we have that chart one more time, maybe. Yes, no, maybe not. Oh, there it is. You can see Micah there. Don't pay attention to that red block, but you see him there, the sixth prophet. Now, Micah's prophecies concerned both Israel and Judah, and he reproved both of them. Notice both Israel and Judah. He reproved them for their sins and foretold their individual captivities. Micah had no problem exposing their sins. Now, what I'm about to give you here is a lengthy list, but a true list of their sins. And I want you to just think about this list. Idolatry, immorality, covetousness, lawlessness, bloodshed, heeding false prophets, listening to them, soothsaying. In case you're wondering what soothsaying is, listen carefully. It's the foretelling of future events but doing it without divine authority. That's what soothsaying is. So the prophets, true prophets, were telling forth or foretelling true accounts from God. But there were some that were soothsaying. Notice dishonest business practices, rich oppressing the poor, gossiping and deceit, strife and hatred, bribery and treachery, which is treason or violating one's own faith. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? Much like the world we're living in today. Now notice for the comfort of God's people, Micah says many things concerning the Messiah. For instance, his incarnation, the place of his birth, which no prophet before Micah so clearly points out as he. He also points out the execution of the offices of Jesus, his prophetic office, his priestly office, his kingly office. The blessings of grace that came by the Lord, some of those would be his pardon, his forgiveness, and also the happiness and the glory of Israel in the latter days. And so he points all of this out. Now when you study this book, here's what you'll see is Micah 
gave three messages. And you can see the division there, each beginning with the injunction, the word hear, H-E-A-R. I've given you the references there, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. Those are the three messages, the beginning of them. The first of them was addressed to all people. The second of them was addressed specifically to the leaders of Israel. The third of his messages was a personal word of pleading to Israel to repent and to return to Jehovah. Three separate messages that God gave to Micah to give to three different audiences. Now, Micah's future expectations, and when you say Micah's, you're really saying God's. So notice, number one, the expectation of a righteous kingdom. The second one, the Messiah as king. The third one, Israel's ministry. Then Israel's restoration. And then Israel's triumph over sin. These are all the future expectations that we see in Micah's prophecy. Now his prophecy, and you read it, sometimes even in some of these books, the way we see them, his prophecies seem to be mixed up sentences, incomplete, even at times maybe disconnected. One moment he's talking about present situations, the next he's talking about future glory. He repeats himself often, but he uses different settings when he does, adding details frequently. Again, that's why we need the Holy Spirit of God <laughs> to help us to understand. And even at that, sometimes it can be a challenge for God to help us to understand some of these books and some of these areas and some of the books. Now, the chart of Micah that we have, notice again, retribution, the kingdom, and the worship. We see again, beginning with the judgment, then promise. Judgment, promise, judgment, promise, and each one, and here it says first collection, second, third, really dealing with the three messages that Micah had, dealing with sin and judgment, hope and comfort, and controversy and pardon. So again, how good God is, you see the beginning of it, dealing with sin, the end of it, the pardon of God. And we see the goodness of God over and over and over again. Now, the character of this book, again, I would classify as prophetical. And the subject would be the declaration of Israel's sin and God's grace in sending the Savior and a king. Of course, the king of kings. For us as a people, when we study this book, the purpose is to reveal to us God's immeasurable love in seeking and saving us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God sought us. God came down to us because we could not go up to Him. And so we find here God's unmeasurable love. An outline, again, short. We see the proclaiming future judgment for past sins. Then in chapters 4 and 5, prophesying future glory because of past promises. That's one thing I love about God. His, his promises are not based on man. They're based on God. And we see that what God has promised, He will do. Then we see in chapter 6 the pleading 
present repentance because of past redemption. In chapter 7, the end of the book, pardoning all iniquity because of who God is and what God does. God is good all the time. Amen? Now, the scope of the book, this was a duration of about 42 years. Even though it's a small book, the writer, of course, the one whose name the book bears, Micah, chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote this, notice, to both kingdoms. We've seen in the past some prophets just to the northern kingdom, some to the southern kingdom. Micah was to both kingdoms, and specifically Samaria of the northern kingdom and Jerusalem to the southern kingdom. And it actually says that in chapter 1, verse 1, last part of it. Now, when was it written? Well, it was dated between 740 and 698 B.C. It was recorded in Israel about 20 miles south of the city of Jerusalem. The key chapter is the last of the chapters, chapter 7, dealing with confession and intercession. Confession and intercession. The key verse is in the first chapter, verse 2. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Great verse. The key word is how those three messages begin, here. You know, and guess what? When you get to the book of the Revelation, the Bible says, all those that have ears to hear, let him hear. Nothing has changed. We need to be listening to the Lord. The key phrase, the Lord hath a controversy with his people. Kind of sad. God has a controversy. May that not be said of us today. The, the key thoughts, there's really three things that occupied the heart of Micah, the prophet. Notice the first one was about the return of the remnant of God's people. The return. The second one is to see Israel restored. And the third would be the reign of the Messiah. These were three things gripping the heart of Micah. A spiritual thought, we even see this in the Old Testament about the brazen serpent, look and live. Look to God. He's still the answer. Listen, we don't need to wait for December to realize he's the reason, not just for the season of Christmas, he's the reason for everything we have in life. The uniqueness of the book Mentioned this earlier, but let's address it here a little bit more. Christ's birthplace, chapter 5, verse 2. You know the verse. Now, let me break it down a little bit. Messiah must have a birthplace. God chose. God chose the time. He chose the place. Now, there were three continents at this time. There was Europe, Asia, and Africa. They were known of the ancient world, and Asia out of the three, was chosen. But Asia has many countries. One of them was a little country called Palestine, which is the promised land. Here, there were three districts. The districts were Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And it was Judah that is the elect and favored one of the three. But here again are many villages. Out of the thousands of obscure villages, Bethlehem, 
is chosen. The prophet put his finger on what is known as Bethlehem Ephratah. Why this Bethlehem? Because there are two Bethlehems in the promised land. The other being in the northern part of the territory of Zebulun, which is in Galilee. That's mentioned in Joshua 19.15. But Micah's Bethlehem was in Judah. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. Bethlehem means house of bread. And how fitting it is that it was this Bethlehem where the bread of life was born. We also see that word Bethlehem Ephratah. Ephratah means fruitful. And again, how fitting that this name would be the place where all fruits of salvation would begin. Jesus is the first fruits of all them that would follow after him. You see, there's much more to that. Boy, isn't it amazing how God just took something so big and just narrowed it down for us, and there was a purpose and a reason for that. Christ's birthplace. Notice also, and you hear this many times, that we even see it alluded to in the New Testament, the golden rule. Now, the Bible tells us here in, in Micah, how that you see here in verse number 8 of chapter 6, and here's what it says, number 1, that we should do justly, and then we see it says love mercy, and then thirdly, walk humbly with thy God. That right there is a formula for success with God, that if you and I would do justly in this world, that we would love mercy the way that God does and walk humbly with the Lord, what a great life we'd have. And this world would be a different place if all Christians would follow after what we oftentimes call the golden rule. Now, how is Christ magnified? Notice, first of all, he's the witness against the nations in chapter 1. Chapter 5, he's seen two ways. One is the smitten judge, the smitten judge, and then the ruler in Israel. The ruler in Israel. As we conclude tonight, and I, I again realize we've, we've done a lot here, but I want to leave you a few thoughts here, mostly from Micah, but really about what we've covered tonight. Israel's sins brought about a worshiping of other gods, little letter G. Micah sought to get Israel to see that there was none like God who could pardon their iniquity and delight in His mercy. I really believe the devil gets us, if I can say it this way, in a ditch, and he leaves us there. That's how the devil works. Chews us up, spits us out, but God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Though an enemy should encamp against us and seek to destroy us, we can have confidence that God is our refuge, that in the secret of his tabernacle he shall hide us, Psalm 27. Now listen to this, people. God uses men, and can I add to that, ladies. God uses us to proclaim his message. In this book, Micah, through the instrumentality of a chosen man, some amazing details of future history are given to all that will hear. As always, God warns before he sends punishment. 
Many times God is speaking, but we're not listening. And here's the thought. Will you let God use you to proclaim His message today to a world that is lost in sin? Let's be one that will speak out for the Lord. Tremendous books in our Bible. May God help us to read them, study them, and to glean from them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the Word of God and the the precious, rich treasure that it is. Bless our week. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. God, that as you call us, may we obey you. Lord, help us in our attitudes. And when need comes, Lord, I pray that you would keep us humble, God, so that you could use us. Thank you for your, your mercy, for your pardon. Lord, I thank you again for loving us as much as you do. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord.